Welcome to Nathan's School of Thought. I'm Nathan Walker, Global Performance Coach, here to share principles gleaned from decades of teaching, training, and coaching on four continents. Whether you're a senior executive, salesperson, new parent, military leader, artist, musician, head of a nonprofit, or a student, it doesn't matter who you are, only who you can become. Join me each week to have your brain flipped upside down as we move together toward a happier, healthier, and much more productive life. Hello, my friends. I've been excited to tell this story to you for 35 weeks, so I guess this is the one. We're going to talk today about something that most of you have never heard of, but absolutely plays a huge part in your life. And we'll begin with a story. Uh, I will tell you that lots of this podcast was inspired by a really fantastic article by David McRaney, the author of a book called You Are Now Less Dumb. And I will include a link to the article in the podcast description. We'll begin with a story about somebody you've probably never heard of. Abraham Wald was born in Hungary in 1902, the son of a Jewish baker. Abraham was a very, very bright boy. Even at an early age, he showed great promise. And he had obvious mathematical gifts. His home was later annexed and became part of Romania. So he was a Jew living in Hungary, then in Romania. But as he grew and became more and more adept at what he was doing, he finally qualified for graduate school in Vienna. He was so good and so prodigious in his talent that even people in the United States began to know who he was, even as a graduate student. He was an extraordinarily intelligent young man. However, in 1938, Abraham was forced to flee the Nazi threat and seek safety in the United States. His family, all except for one brother, died in the extermination camp at Auschwitz. Now, World War II didn't just change Abraham's life, it changed everybody's. But one of the things that was most difficult about World War II, militarily speaking, is that it required a whole new kind of thinking about the technology of war. For example, air wars were much different in World War II than they were when they just began to be a thing in World War I. They had to compute all kinds of things. If a ship was turning and torpedoes had been launched, what was the radius that the ship needed to turn in to avoid the torpedoes? Or at what angle did the torpedoes need to be fired to hit the opposing ships? How were planes supposed to be kept in the air? What kinds of maneuvers could they do and not do? Different communication channels were available in World War II that had never existed in World War I. The technology made things infinitely more complicated, but gave us some capability that we didn't have previously. Now, in the midst of all this, some universities got together at the behest of the federal government and tried to put together what kind of became an unofficial war math department. So, together with different universities, they would house enclaves of people who had particular skill in some sort of technology. Abraham, remember, was a mathematician and quite well known for his talent with mathematics. He was appointed to a position with one of these groups at Cornell University. Interestingly enough, 
he was legally still an alien. And so they used to joke around that some of the papers that he wrote had to be immediately taken from his hands because they were classified and an alien and, and, a, and a foreign national could not have access to him. Anyway, so he became a part of this group at Columbia University called the Strategic Research Group. And the director of that group was a man named Alan Wallace. He said the Strategic Research Group was the most extraordinary group of statisticians ever organized, taking into account both number and quality. Many of the people in that group became famous in their respective fields. Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, was part of that same group. But Abraham Wald was considered by most to be the smartest person in the room. Now, one of the thorny problems that the military was dealing with was what was happening to the bomber pilots and the bomber crews. As bombers would go out on their runs, they would just come back, if they ever came back at all, absolutely riddled with holes from anti-aircraft guns. There would be holes all in all in fuselage and around the wings, just everywhere you can imagine. But so many did not come back that they, re- they were referred to in one article as ghosts already. And that nickname kind of stuck. The bomber crews knew that their time was numbered. It wasn't a matter of whether or not they would be shot down. It's just how long would they live before they were. This was a big issue. And so the military was very concerned about figuring out how to put armor in all of those places where the planes had been hit so heavily. The only problem was that heavily didn't just describe the amount of gunfire, heavy described the armor itself. How were you supposed to armor plate these things enough that it would stop the, the damage from the gunfire, but not make the plane so heavy that it would just fall out of the sky and hit the ground? This was a big issue. They had recovered several planes that did make it back to the base, and they looked at where they had been hit. And so they figured out these are the areas that we need to develop armor for. And Abraham Wald, as a, as a statistician, approached it in a very different way. His first question was, what assumptions are we making that we shouldn't be making? He was very mathematical in his approach. As it turned out, Abraham Wald pointed out something that is now credited with saving thousands of lives. As they were working to develop armor that could be placed in all of these areas where the bullets hit, Abraham pointed out that the flaw in their thinking was the supposition that that's where the armor needed to be. In fact, it was the planes that didn't come back that they should be looking at, not the ones that did. He supposed and assumed and created equations that showed the probability that the airplanes that were going down and never returned were hit somewhere around the fuel tanks. And so he suggested that the armor be placed there. The success rate for the bomber crews jumped dramatically. And as I mentioned, he was credited with saving thousands of lives. The statistical analyses that he did and the kinds of of ways of approaching things that he developed are still in use today. And this was clear back in the 1930s. He was a game-changing scientist, but he was also responsible for saving many lives because of his willingness to question his own thinking and say, 
What suppositions am I making that I am unaware of? We can look at that situation and say, can you even believe that all those military leaders and all those experts in combat and everything else were so clueless as to miss something so obvious as, oh yeah, duh, it's the planes that didn't come back that will show us where the damage was. But they missed it. And you and I do the same thing all the time. This is part of human nature. This tendency to look at the things that did come back, the survivors, and draw improper conclusions about them is called survivorship bias. And this is at play in your life more than you can imagine. You want some examples? Survivorship bias lets us put too much credibility, too much weight on the things that we see that made it. So, classic cars. You'll get classic car aficionados who say, man, they don't build them like they used to. Yeah, and that's a good thing. Recent research has showed that modern cars, despite the complexity of repair, tend to last quite a bit longer than their classic counterparts. A great example is an old VW Bug. VW Bugs are very, very popular because they're quite easy to repair. Their design is really, really simple, and they were made by the, you know, hundreds of thousands. So finding one is not very difficult, and you can still find old Bugs that have a million miles on them and have had the engine gone through a couple of times, and somebody will say, yeah, they don't make them like this anymore. Nope, they don't. Because the vast majority of VW Bugs have gone the way of all the earth. They're now little rust piles. Here's another example. Old log cabins. You'll walk through the woods, right? And you'll see this log cabin standing there and you'll say, boy, back then, they built with their heart. They built with their souls. They were creating a refuge for their family. Things aren't built like that anymore. Yep. Totally true. They're not built like that anymore. We have houses that stand a lot longer than some of those log cabins did. What it actually means is in that clearing that you just walked through, there might have been a hundred log cabins. Ninety-nine of them fell down. What you see is one remnant. We make the mistaken assumption that this was representative of the entire group and they were all built with this kind of quality and this kind of care. When it actually means the opposite. You travel through a new town and you think this would be a fun place to live. You sit down for lunch at a really good restaurant and you think, man, this is fantastic. These mom and pop restaurants are my favorite thing. And somebody said the one across the street is just as good. But there's only two restaurants in town and this thing has grown like crazy. This would be a good place to start a restaurant. You're looking at the survivors. What it might mean is that that's a terrible town to start a restaurant because 17 of them failed and two remain. Could be true of a restaurant or a car dealership or any other type of business. We tend to look at the survivors. Here's another one for you. Motivational speakers. If you do what I do and you do what I tell you to do, you'll be successful. Then that's followed by a whole bunch of stories. Great stories of success and the last person standing finally made it. Yeah, because they were the last person standing. That's why they made it. It very often has a lot to do with luck and not so much to do with here's how to make it work. And this happens in business all the time. We talk about best practices. We talk about marketing methods. We look at Apple or Google or Amazon or some business like that, 
say, we need to figure out exactly what they did. We need to do what they did. Not necessarily. We might learn more by understanding why hundreds and hundreds of other businesses who did pretty much exactly what they did failed and we've never heard of them. Sometimes it's a matter of timing. Sometimes it happens to be one particularly charismatic leader or marketer or scientist or designer that has a huge effect on the success of the business. But if we look at that as a whole and we say, boy, if we do what they do, we'll be as successful as they are, that's not necessarily guaranteed at all. That is survivorship bias. We see it with business leaders themselves. We see it with pro athletes. We see it with famous artists of any kind. This person became a famous singer because they did this and this and this. I'm going to do that. This person has a million followers on YouTube because they approached it this way. I'm going to approach it that way. It's very likely that understanding what didn't work or the things they tried that didn't fly or the other businesses that did the same thing or individuals that did the same thing and did not have that same level of success might be worth studying. So here's why I'm bringing this up with relation to you. Aren't we supposed to study successful people? If we do, we are really studying their survivors. Studies of failures may be more helpful because it would help prevent false positives. Maybe studying what not to do would teach us more. Nowhere is that more apparent than in our own lives. Some of what happens to people who become famously successful really is luck. We have a tendency to look at ourselves and say, yes, but what if I'm the failure? So what are you supposed to do? What if you're the cabin that fell down? What if you look at the survivors and say, I can never be one of those? What if a study of what not to do feels like it's a study of your own life and your own lack of success? How are you supposed to feel about that? Ah. This is the most exciting thing about understanding survivorship bias. It can change your whole life. Once you understand what it is and how to see it and how to turn it around, things will never be the same. That's why I was so excited to talk to you about this. That happens next week in another episode. We'll talk again soon. <laughs>